0: believe I'm... There we go. Let's try this again. Good morning, church. Welcome to Providence. Oh, you're lively today. Welcome back, college students. Uh, uh, For real, though, it is so good to have you all back. Um, Some of y'all are like the Holy Spirit. You know, we never know when you're going to kind of come and go as you please. So it's so good to be filled with both the Spirit of God this morning and college students. Um, I can't wait to connect with some of y'all and hear about your summer. I know some of you guys served overseas. Some of you guys served at camps, some of you went to Kaleo, some of you uh, just worked, and that's okay too. So I'm looking forward to uh, connecting with some of y'all, and we really, really are uh, glad that you're back. Uh, We have been marching along through John, uh, the book of John, as we were last semester, and so we're going to pick back up in John 12 this morning, as Jeremy just read for us. Um, Before we begin, I'm going to pray for us, so let's, let's do that together. God, we thank you for this space that we can come together and worship you through song, through prayer, through the teaching of your word, through the breaking of bread and taking of juice. We're so thankful to be able to do this freely. God, as we sang just a moment ago, you are all we need, and so we ask that as a result of this morning, you would be all that we want. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So a little over a week ago, the Mega Millions lottery jackpot hit historic heights. Uh, I believe it was just under $1.3 billion, which is the second highest lottery the Mega Millions has ever gotten to, and the third largest lottery that we've ever seen in our country. The winning ticket, which came at an odds of winning at one in about 300 million, was purchased at a Speedway gas station just outside of Chicago in in a suburb. And we may never know the identity of the person who bought this ticket. I don't know if they've released it. I haven't checked in the past few days, but I doubt that it is released because there's an Illinois law that prevents or that that allows people to remain anonymous if they win a prize of over $250,000, which is entirely understandable given the chain reaction of events that is set off when average people are suddenly given millions and millions of dollars. In this case, I think after tax, the cash payout is like $500 million or $400 million. It's bizarre, right? So it could be a fun exercise for us to think for a moment of what we might do with $500 million. That is a lot of money. Perhaps you'd pay off debt, take a vacation, uh, give some to charity, your favorite local church, Huh? Uh, One recent news article explains that while some were able to adjust to life as a millionaire, others say the joy and thrill that came from the unexpected sudden wealth soon turned to bad choices and sadness and ruined their lives. Take, for instance, William Post of Pennsylvania, who in 1988 won $16.2 million. And not long after that, his brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him for the inheritance. He was later sued by an ex-girlfriend for a share of the winnings, and when he passed away in 2006, was $1 million in debt. Or take in 2015, Ronnie Music Jr. He won $3 million on a scratch-off ticket, that sounds crazy to me, and used the money to purchase and distribute crystal meth, even crazier, right? Around a year later, in 2016, he was sentenced to 21 years in prison for his involvement in a drug ring. Now, as I did some research this past week, I got down a really dark rabbit hole of stories of people that just their stories ended very badly. And some I had to stop reading; they were so horrific. But they weren't all bad news. There were some good stories out there of people that used the money to actually pay off their houses and paid off debt. They invested it. Some some gave money away to charities. Some gave it to people who were friends of theirs before they were millionaires. And so there were some good stories and people that had their lives positively impacted. There are many, many stories out there of lottery winners whose lives were turned upside down, both for good and for bad, and they all began with a few favorable numbers. But for each winner, their lottery winnings set off a chain reaction of other events that they could not stop once it started like the first domino that falls in the chain reaction of other dominoes, or the huge forest fire that's set ablaze by a small spark. It all began with one important and fortuitous event. And that's exactly where we find ourselves in John chapter 12 this morning. If you weren't here last week, we studied the story of Lazarus. Uh, Josh preached for us and he did a very good job. And we unpacked like what, what happened when Lazarus got sick and he passed away, and Jesus came and raised him from the dead. And that's where we are in in chapter 12. Josh spent most of his time looking at this idea of suffering and the people in Lazarus's life that felt such pain and grief as Lazarus was getting sick. And then when he passed away, and then Jesus, when he enters the story and he enters their pain also, and he feels that pain and suffering with them, and we see Jesus weeping. And so that's where we spent most of our time last week. I found it interesting that at some point um, in John 11 we saw that Jesus was deliberately taking his time like he had the opportunity to go and heal Lazarus but he chose to go slowly and we read that in John 11:14 Jesus told them plainly Lazarus has died and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe so to paraphrase he was glad that he did not heal Lazarus in order to perform a greater miracle Now, this sign became the seventh sign and last sign in the book of John that Jesus performs. And it is undoubtedly the greatest. And this is confirmed, as we'll see this morning, in chapter 12. Now, one other thing I want to note as we enter chapter 12, that time slows down. Through the first 11 chapters of the book of John, they took place over two to three years of Jesus' ministry. From chapter 12 through verse 20, it's going to take six to eight days. Okay, I want, I, we need to hear that very clearly. First, eleven chapters, a few years. These next nine chapters are going to take about a week—the final week of Jesus's life on Earth. Now, Lazarus, Lazarus's illness, death, and resurrection brought about very strong responses. Some came to believe, and some got very, very angry. And his, his story is certainly an interesting one. So we don't read a lot about Lazarus in the scriptures. We don't know a lot about him. He seems like just an average guy that just happened to befriend Jesus. So he and his sisters, Mary and Martha, became a friend to Jesus. And he just seems like this average guy that became the greatest living testimony to the glory of Jesus. And it had nothing to do with what Lazarus did for Jesus and everything to do with what Jesus did for Lazarus. So he got this illness, it took his life, and for every other person throughout the course of human history, that was it. Like, they were were just dead, they stayed dead. But for Lazarus, Jesus had other plans and he became a walking miracle. Let's read in verse nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came, but not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now imagine for a moment being this guy who had died. Now, you may have heard stories, uh, maybe you even know people in our church that that should have died, right? Maybe they even lost consciousness and were resuscitated, or they had a near death experience and they should not be with us. Maybe you have that story. But that is not Lazarus' story. He was in the grave for four days, he began to stink. There's nothing, we, we have nothing to compare this to, and his life tells the story of the glory of God. D.A. Carson says that his very life provided a ground for faith in Jesus. Now, we have people in our theological circles that like to critique the phrase, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. Now, I'm not gonna attribute to this this to any person because it's been debated recently in recent years if the person actually ever said that. But it is true that in order to preach the gospel, we do have to use words. We have to open our mouth and proclaim the truth of Jesus to people. If anyone in human history had a pass, it might have been Lazarus. Because all he had to do was walk around and people say, whoa, you should be dead. Well, like, like, wait, like I, I went to your funeral, bro. Like, why are you here? And he just had to point to Jesus and say, he did it. right? He's a walking testimony. But this sign was not welcomed by all. And what we're going to see is his resurrection starts this chain reaction of events that's going to lead us to the last week of Jesus' life. And the first way we see that is at the end of chapter 11, we see the chief priests and Pharisees making plans to kill Jesus. In verse 53, we read, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So to this point in John, if you're just kind of coming back uh and and being with us this morning after a few months off we see two groups of people throughout the book of john some who are more accepting of jesus and some who definitely are not and the dividing line is getting further and further apart and the first group that we see here are the jewish leaders made up of chief priests and pharisees now being a dad of two little girls there's a lot of singing and dancing in our home we have all sorts of singing all the time and disney movies are always on They're, they're just the best Um, One recent favorite of ours is Encanto. Any any Encanto fans out there? Yeah? Yeah? All you people that have kids, little girls, yeah, you're raising your hand? Uh, It's about this Colombian family that possesses gifts that they use to serve their community. And even if you haven't seen Encanto, you've probably heard the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, because it's unfortunately very catchy. Very, very unfortunately. Bruno's gift is seeing the future, right? He, he possesses the ability to see into the future. And so over the years, he's, he's telling his family what's going to come about, and a lot of times he's giving bad events, like bad events are going to happen. So he'll share it, it happens, and over time, his family wants to ostracize him. They think that if we stop talking about Bruno, if we get rid of this guy, that our problems will all just go away. Now, this is the approach the Pharisees took, For for several chapters now, we've seen people in the crowds afraid to talk about Jesus for what might happen to them. They're afraid. They continue to do it because they can't help but talk about him, but they become increasingly afraid because of what the, the religious leaders want to do with him. But it's gotten to the point now where they can't take it anymore. They have to make plans to crucify him. That's verse 53. In verse 57 of 11, they've given orders, specific orders, Uh, out for him to be arrested at the next opportunity. And it's all for selfish gain. We read in verse 48, they say to one another, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Later in chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now it's untrue that the entire world was going after Jesus. But to them, it felt that way. From their perspective, they thought that everyone was going to follow Jesus, and they had to put a stop to it because they lost power as a result. But they didn't want to just kill Jesus. Now they want to kill Lazarus too. Let's read in verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, Lazarus at this moment has got to be like, whoa, whoa, guys, guys, like let, let's take a step back, right? like. Why are you going to, like, from his perspective, all he did was live his life. Yes, he was a friend to Jesus, but he got sick, and then he died. That's all he did, right? And we don't know if, like, he ate something that made him, like, we don't, we don't know the illness he got. He just died. And then Jesus did the rest. Jesus raised him back to life, and now he's just walking around a healthy person. And he's like, what, guys, what, why, why why do you, you got to kill me? He, he's really done nothing. But because of his testimony to the greatness of Jesus, they want to kill him as well. So that's the, first, that's the first domino. Second, we see that when Jesus comes back, his friends throw him a dinner party, and Mary anoints Jesus. Let's read in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair and the f- the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So back in chapter 11 right after Jesus healed Lazarus he went away in the wilderness because he knew his hour was not quite it was not quite time for him to die but as the Passover approaches he comes back to Bethany and so when he's there we see Lazarus Mary and Martha it seems that all his disciples were there as well and they're having this dinner together and Mary busts out this bottle of ointment and and begins to wipe it all over Jesus's feet. Mary gave her very best to Jesus. Now it wasn't just expensive because of the purity of it, we see that it's pure nard, but also in the amount of it. There's a great amount of ointment that she washes over Jesus, but it seems that she cares very little about the expensive ointment at least in relation to Jesus. She's displaying her humility and her devotion to Jesus in anointing his feet. And this also, I believe, sets the stage for John chapter 13, when Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. Now, if we compare this account with what we read in Matthew and Mark, we see that Mary didn't just wash his feet, but also his head and likely his whole body, preparing him for burial. So we see the cross is near. The third thing we see is, John gives us a taste of what Judas is about to do in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, knowing how this would play out, John gives us a heads up in verse 4 that he was about to betray him. He attempted to. Bring this up with pure motives, questioning why this valuable bottle will be broken and wasted on Jesus like this. It's interesting that the other gospels actually attribute the disciples collectively questioning Mary here. They say together, collectively, why would you waste this bottle? But John makes an interesting delineation from that and attributes the questioning to Judas alone. See, he uses hindsight to explain that Judas didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about it at all. He didn't care about the cross that was coming for Jesus. He was focused on filling the money bag like he he was like the disciple's tax collector. He was just carrying this money, money bag around. He was helping himself to a percentage each time that it got refilled. John lets us know that in the end, it's Judas who's going to betray Jesus. And we don't know, like trying to, uh, reconcile this with, the, uh, with Matthew and Mark. We don't know if like, Judas was instigating the other guys together, like, hey, why, you know, why is she doing this? Or if they, they came to this thought on their own. We just know that, that John is saying, man, Judas is the bad guy. We all came around in the end, but Judas betrayed him. His betrayal is near. The fourth thing we see is the triumphal entry in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Now, in Encanto, there were a whole lot of people that did not want to talk about Bruno, but there was one that wanted to talk about Bruno. Was her name Maribel? Yeah, okay. You guys, you know Encanto. Uh, She was his niece, I believe, and so the more she learned about him, the more she had to ask. She had to know. She could not let it go. And as a contrast to the religious leaders who wanted to shut down any talk of Jesus, we see another group that wants to herald him as king. The crowds cannot help but speak of what they saw happen to Lazarus. And word had spread and people are coming. That's why they thought the whole world was coming to Jesus. And who could blame them? It would be the equivalent of like Jesus going to the graveyard and having someone dug up days after their death and just calling out their name. We would have a similar response. People would be asking, who is this man that heals people from the dead? Who is this man? And it's Jesus. This is the crowd that's come out to either spread out palm branches on the road or wave them as he passed. Now this had become a, a symbol of national pride they're waving these palm branches signals their hope for a Messiah that would bring about political freedom. So they shouted, Hosanna, which means, save us, we pray, or bring salvation now. And then they quote Psalm 18, which is a song of deliverance. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they add something themselves. They add even the king of Israel. So they're not crying for salvation in regards to their spiritual plight, but they wanted political freedom. Jesus quotes back to them, Zechariah 9, fear not, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, we might think that there would be confusion here, right? They're looking for this political king, waving these palm branches, and he comes in on a donkey. Not, not Not chariots, not wielding a huge sword himself, not surrounded by soldiers, he's riding a donkey. And despite what confusion we would assume to be there, they continue to just shout Bible verses and celebrate him coming in. But the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy is another signal that the cross is near. And the last one that we see, and this is the big one, Jesus is going to affirm it here, that the Greeks are coming to attend the feast and they desire, desire to see Jesus. Let's read in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now this is the final piece that sets in motion the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This is clearly a trigger for Jesus. And he knows the hour has come. And we have to recognize here, this is a major shift in the book of John, this is the first time we see Jesus's hour being now, the time being now. If you remember, I mean, even back uh, to last semester, the time of Jesus's uh, like the hour, his hour, what he's referring to is in the future. It's it's not yet come. In John two, when he performed uh, the miracle at the wedding. His mom approached him and said, we're out of wine, and he responds, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. After he feeds the multitudes in John 6 and tells his disciples that he's the bread of life, they want to celebrate him. They want him to go to the Feast of Booths, but he says, my hour, my time has not yet come. You go to the feast. I'm not going because my time hasn't fully come. That's John 7. After he did decide to go to the feast, he made some of the religious leaders angry So they were seeking to arrest him, John 7, 30, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. In John 8, he says that God is his father. Who does that? He made him angry all over again that God is his father, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. If I've learned anything in studying the book of John, and I hope you have too, that John is so intentional. He's so purposeful in his writing. Nothing is done by accident. So when we hear the hour has come, light bulbs ought to be going off for us. This is, this is a shift. So what does it mean? As we've, as we've said before, the hour is referring to the cross. When Jesus will be crucified and resurrected for the sins of his people, Jesus refers to it as his glorification. There are things, people, and places that Jesus avoided earlier in his ministry because his hour had not yet come, but now it's time. We'll see this again in chapter 13, again in chapter 17, the hour is here. But why now? It's clear that the Greeks' desire to see him is this final trigger that's gonna set this in motion in order for them, for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles, for, for everyone outside of the old covenant people of God, for them to see Jesus as he is, he must finish what he set out to do. Commentator Leon Morris has said, the gospel is a gospel for the whole world only because of the cross. A much older guy, Athanasius, has said, as he spread out his hands on the cross, he drew the ancient people of the old covenant with one hand and the Gentiles of the new covenant with the other, uniting them in himself. Now what's interesting is that in our text, in John 12, it doesn't seem that Jesus ever even talked to them. Like, he, it doesn't seem that he talked to these Greeks who wanted to meet him. But John puts it in there to show us that this is the trigger to tell us that it is time. He only spoke to Andrew and Philip saying, the hour has come. So the wheels have been set in motion. We see the plans of the religious leaders to put him to death. We see Mary anointing his body. We see Judas's evil desires, the triumphal entry, and now the Greeks' desire to meet Jesus. And it's here. The hour is here. Jesus knows it, and next week we're going to see that he feels his heavy weight. It hits him. That within the week, he's going to be put on the cross. But he doesn't speak, the scriptures don't speak, as his dying, as defeat. We see it as victory, which is quite the paradox. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. That's what we have here. How absurd can it be that dying leads to victory? Let's read in verse 24. Truly, truly, he says, listen up. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Now, Jesus explains it in terms that they would have understood in their agrarian society that in order for a harvest to be produced, a seed must go into the ground and die. Then and only then can a seed produce fruit. Now, first, he's obviously speaking about himself right, that he must go to the cross, his mission on earth must be completed to pay the penalty for sin once and for all, absorbing the wrath of God meant for sinners, taking upon himself. The paradox first applies to Jesus, but also to us. We have to catch this. And this is where things are really going to start to click. In verse 25, whoever loves his life will lose their life. But if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for all eternity. The way to follow Jesus and gain life for all eternity is to die to ourselves. Jesus' death brings about the opportunity of life for all, and our own personal death to ourselves is the doorway into fullness of life. Lazarus became a physical example of this, and we are walking spiritual examples of this that death brings life. But wow, is this hard? Is this not hard? Uh, just a couple of days ago, I have a horrible example from my own life. We were having a a family day. Uh, We had very little on the calendar. And so, you know, it was my day off, and I was looking forward to sleeping in, and the person next to me just so happened to be my wife had their alarm set super early. And so it woke me up early, so I'm waking up, I'm groggy, I'm grumpy, right? And the kids were like chippy with each other first thing in the morning. Uh, We currently have a foster boy in our home right now, so we have four kids, and life is just hard in general with four kids, just heads up out there. It's, it's challenging. Um, I had brought that morning uh, the two our girls on some errands with me, and so we're up here at the church for a little bit, and we we're, were hanging out for, like, maybe an hour. And at some point, I, I kind of let them run around when I'm here. You know, doors are locked. They're safe. But they're kind of in and out kids' classrooms, doing their own thing. And at some point, Scarlett approaches me with no pants on. She, she just, and no diaper. Like, it's just gone. Like, there's no pants, nothing. And she, she can talk a little, but, like, she... Couldn't really tell me where they were. And so I'm like, sweetie, where's your pants? We, we need to find your pants. This is important. I, I didn't have any diapers on me, so I'm like, you know, this is important. And so we're searching. It's like 15, 20 minutes in. I'm like, I need your pants. We, we really need your pants. And so the more I ask, you know, I'm trying to be calm, but, like, there's some urgency here because I'm not trying to clean up messes, you know, all of the church. And so I'm, like, asking her. She's getting a little more scared. She's, like, sucking her thumb. It's like, can I just, can you just find your pants? Like, I just want just want your pants. Um, And so, and then a few minutes later, Jeremy's here and I ask him, he's like, oh yeah, they're right over here. I'm like, where have you been? Uh, So, so we found the pants, uh, but not before I had wrapped her in a blanket and I, Kaylee, I'll wash it if you're in here. Uh, Just, but I had to stop, you know, What, what do you do? You just cover it up. So we go home and the grumpiness and crabbiness in our family, like it had just run through the afternoon, like Y'all know these times, like, there's just barbs being shot at each other, and we're discouraging one another, and man, we it's just, it just wasn't a good day, and we, I had to have a conversation with my son, and he wasn't happy about something, we go on this car ride, and he was saying everything that I was feeling in my heart, everything I was feeling, he was blame shifting and pointing fingers, he was deflecting, like, it was everybody else's problem, right? making a bigger deal than it was, saying outrageous things. I could see the anger on his face. Now, this was just one of those days that, like, everybody else was the problem, right? Like, if, if they all got their life together, my life would be good, right? Have you had those days? And I was really the problem, right? Like, it's okay. I, I knew it. But it was in that moment that the Holy Spirit blew me up and revealed it to me. Because as he's saying these things, I'm thinking, wow, that's, yeah, that's how I feel, so it was in that moment that I had to tell him, buddy, this is why we need Jesus. And not like lecturing, not like this is why you need Jesus, you know, but like this is why your mom and dad need Jesus. This is why I need Jesus. Because on our own, we're a wreck. This isn't like a die to yourself once and now we're good. No more dying. You've got to daily, t- the, cross, the scriptures say, daily taking up our cross. The cross is an instrument of death. Daily, you have to die to yourself. And man, it's hard. Man, it's hard. Apologizing to your children is so hard. It's hard. I want comfort. I want everything to go according to plan. Man, on my days off, I just want to nap, right? Like, parents, can I get an amen? Like, I just want to nap. But what is the way of Jesus? Dying and serving, dying and serving, dying and serving yesterday, today, tomorrow, every day for the rest of our lives, dying and serving. First, Jesus, sacrificing big for him, whatever he asks of us, giving ourselves to worship him and for his kingdom, not ours, and then dying and serving others. Like I mentioned before, in this next chapter, we're going to see Jesus washes his disciples' feet, which was disgusting. Only servants wash the feet of those in the room. What are the lowly ways that you can wash the feet of those in your life? Changing dirty diapers, changing diapers of other people's kids, apologizing to those you've wronged. It's doing the dishes unprompted. It's fill in the blank of what you don't like to do but honor someone else. It's that. Dying and serving. Now this obviously is a huge takeaway. Like This is the takeaway of this morning. Jesus set the example for us. He died for us. And then he calls us to do the same. And this is the way that we get life. So first question, have you died to yourself? You could be new to the faith this morning. You could be wrestling with Christianity or following Jesus. This is the way to eternal life. Dying to ourselves, We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot. We cannot put ourselves together. We must die to ourselves. Have you done that? And followers of Jesus in the room, have you died to yourself today? Are you prepared to die to yourself tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And then own it when you don't. The second thing I'd like to highlight is we need to spend more time knowing Jesus intimately. There were two positive responses in our text this morning that we saw. Uh, The one response by the crowds is they just started shouting stuff, right? They started screaming Bible verses at him. They're waving these palm branches because that's what they knew to do. And so it seems that these are recent converts, if they believed, that it's brand new. So they just start saying what they, they know to do. They just start shouting Bible verses and waving these palm branches and that is one way to respond. It seems like an immature faith, but it, it is one way to respond. But what did those people do who knew Jesus? They sat with him, they ate with him, they rested and relaxed with Jesus. Mary busted out this ointment and sacrificed for him. Now, it's not flashy, it doesn't draw huge crowds, this doesn't show up on social media, but it's genuine. It's real, and it's the way of Jesus. So know him more intimately. The third thing, I'm gonna encourage us to live a life that provides a ground for faith in Jesus. Now again, I think Lazarus had it easy. All he had to do was breathe, right? And say, look, I was the dead guy, he healed me. But for all of us in the room who follow Jesus, that is your spiritual story. There is no like, oh, I was kind of a good person, and then he made me a little bit better, no, you were all dead. You were dead before Jesus saved you, and now you're alive. There is no like, better story than another. We were all dead. In Jesus, you're alive. So whether, whether you were like, strung out on drugs or alcohol or any other addiction, and he saved you, that's amazing. If you were six years old in your bedroom and your parents quietly and methodically led you to faith in Jesus, praise God. You were a dead five-year-old, and you were an alive six-year-old. Praise God. That's your story. Live a life that provides a ground for faith in Jesus, and then tell someone about it. The next thing, may we long to see Jesus. What did the Greeks say when they approached Philip? They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That was it. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. May we never graduate from that. When you open the scriptures, when you come to church, when you pray, let this be our cry. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Always long to see him. Cultivate this in yourself. This is why we practice spiritual disciplines. To cultivate the desire to continue to want to see him. Not to just see him, but to want to. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. On the other hand, we ought to be known as people who can take others to Jesus. They approached Philip. Why? One, I think it's clear that it's because of where he was from. Philip had a Greek name like them. He was from Galilee, which was a Gentile region. It seems that they identified with him. But also, when we go back to chapter 1, Philip and Andrew are known for taking other people to Jesus. I think he became known for that. I think they, they knew they could go to Philip, and he could take them to Jesus. Now, whether or not, I, we don't know in the scriptures if he actually did that. He went and got Andrew, like, hey, what should we do? And then they went to Jesus. But they knew that Philip could do that. Now, do you have people in your life that know you can take them to Jesus? I've got a few people in my life that, for whatever reason, for one reason or another, that they're not ready to, to follow Jesus and, and walk by faith and and make him lord of their life or you know whatever however you want to say that they don't want to follow Jesus yet but i'm committed to do two things for them i want to communicate that i love jesus and invite them to do that too and the second thing is i want to constantly force myself into their life i want to stay in their life because hard things are going to come right we've experienced them suffering is going to come things are going to come into their life that are going to make them question Some of these bigger things about God, about life, about whatever. And I want to be in their life, and I want them to know that I can take them to Jesus when that happens. Do you have those people in your life that know that you can take them to Jesus? Now, we started off by talking about that chain reaction, right? The chain reaction of events that began with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and ultimately led to Jesus losing his life. But they didn't take it from him. He gave up his life willingly in order to bring about a great harvest, a harvest that includes you and me. And this is still going on today, this chain reaction of events, this fruit being produced from Jesus' sacrifice for us is still playing out before us. Now, as we consider these things this morning, let us remember the price that he paid in order that we might be reconciled back to God and how we might serve him, not clinging tightly to our desires, our comforts, Our naps even, like, man, I just want to nap, you know, like, don't hold tightly to those things if your kids need you or whatever, whatever that is for you. Don't hold tightly to our life because when we lose our life, when we crucify our flesh and die to ourselves, that is when we know that we keep our life for all eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us you, you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. This was not easy for you. We're going to read in the very next verse in John 12. And you, you felt the heavy weight of what's coming. And so, God, we, we thank you for dying on our behalf and reconciling us to you. Holy Spirit, would you help us to crucify our flesh every single day? This is so hard. Let us just admit this morning, this is hard stuff. But Holy Spirit, with your help, we know we can do this. And so would you lead us to to crucify our flesh, to lay down our desires for both your kingdom and for the sake of others. Help us to live in this way. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.